God's strength to get through. It really is. Um, we're in, uh, as Steve said, John chapter 8 this morning. I hope you have your Bibles with you and invite you to turn there. We're going to be looking at those verses for a few minutes today. Uh, <clears throat> as we continue looking at pictures of grace. But before we look at that story, I want to share with you one Another story, this one courtesy of uh, Max Lepato. People often ask me how the king met her, and I gladly tell the story. He loved to mingle with his subjects. Once a week, he would dress as a common beggar and position himself in the market. Most of the townsfolk would just pass him by. Others would mock him or jeer. Sometimes someone would toss a coin into his cup. And that's how the king met her. The beautiful young woman saw the beggar and pitied him. She placed a gold coin in the beggar's hand, whispering, I hope this helps. I know what it is to go hungry. From that moment, the king was in love. He called me into his throne room and breathlessly declared, I have found her. I have found the love of my life. I'd never heard him speak in such a fashion. As his advisor, I often urged him to find a queen. He was strikingly handsome, a young man of means and influence, power and position. Finding candidates was no challenge. Piquing his interest was. So I urged him to tell me about the girl. Her beauty rivals springtime. Her, her smile beckons the sun to shine and the birds to sing. Black hair, the color of night, eyes of topaz, and a face shaped like a hewn jewel. As he spoke, I realized I knew this girl. Who didn't? What man hadn't noticed her on the path or considered paying her price? I knew this girl, so I told the king who she was and what she did. My words stunned him. He cried, this can't be true. You mean, you, you, you mean she sells herself to men? Yes. You must be mistaken. Put a stop to this. Don't we have a law against that kind of behavior? We do. Well, enforce it. So we did. I sent my soldiers into the evening streets with authority to arrest and imprison. The diligence worked, but only for a short time. The women served their sentences and promptly returned to the streets. They took their work into the shadows as for the girl who had stolen the heart of the king, my men spotted her each evening. The king was crestfallen. He sent me to talk to her to disclose his feelings and convince her to abandon her trade. After all, he asked, how can a harlot be a queen? I found her standing near the door of a tavern. As I approached, she stepped away into the shadows and I followed. Before I could speak, she held up her hand. I've served my time. I've done nothing wrong tonight. I assured her I meant no harm. I came from the king bearing not only his authority, but his affection. Her eyes widened. The king has taken notice of me? Yes. Does, 
Does he know who I am? What I do? Yes, he does. But he sees something else in you. If you change, who knows? He may take you into his castle. She gave me a long look. The light from the tavern window cast her face in gold. And I could see what the king saw. Beneath the blackened eyes, the painted face, I saw pure beauty. If I change. If I change. I can't change. Don't you think I've tried? I can't. And she turned and left. I collected my thoughts and I went to tell the king. He was waiting at the castle entrance. He expected a better report. As I related her reply, his shoulders sagged. He shook his head and for a long time he did not speak. I waited as he paced the castle courtyard between the torches and among the guards. And he paused for the longest time, deep in thought. The shadows hid his face, but I could imagine it, saddened with the reality that he must let her go. For the king was a practical man. He would forget her and move on. But as he stepped toward me, I saw not sadness, but resolve. Ask her again. Tell tell her I will marry her as she is. She cannot change in order to become my queen. Then I will make her my queen so that she can change. It's an amazing response from someone so noble and so powerful to someone who is anything but. It was radically different treatment than what the lady that we read in John's story was given. I suspect that lady was no one special, no one important, no one really of any consequence at all. You see, back then, as today, important people aren't treated the way she was treated. The woman was most likely somebody of low birth, of no perceived value to society, just a nameless woman no one was particularly concerned about. She may have even been a prostitute, although John doesn't tell us that. Perhaps she was simply a lost cause, a woman so hungry for some kind of acceptance or at least the appearance of love that she would sleep with most any man who said the right words or gave her the right kind of attention. However she came to this situation, the facts of the matter here in John 8 are not in doubt. Both John and her accusers tell us that she was caught in the very act of adultery. It must have been a horrifying experience. Evidently, it happened early one morning. The door probably was thrown back in the room where she and her partner were letting in the rays of the morning sun into the dark gray room. As the door slammed against the wall, they went and grabbed her. Leaving the man behind, they took her, probably struggling against them. 
but they were stronger than her, these rough men. And they pulled her out of the bed, out of the room, and into the streets, leaving the man there. She may have fought and scratched and screamed, but despite her unwillingness, she came out into the harsh light of day. She was young, probably. Old people aren't in that business very long. But she was worn from the life she was living. Her clothes were dirty and torn. Her hair was uncombed. Her arms and legs and face were reddened and bruised by the rough treatment. And her eyes were red from first fear and then anger and finally tears. And they pulled her along through the streets. Behind her, a crowd of sorts began to gather, leering and jeering and taunting, blaming. There's really nothing she could say in her defense. I mean, after all, she was caught red-handed. She was guilty. As a Jewish woman growing up in a Jewish culture, she, she understood what the penalty for her wrong was. She understood the consequences of her action. We might not think adultery is, is that big a deal. It's certainly not a crime today, given that it seems to be everywhere. It's rampant in our society, but that wasn't the case then. The law of Moses was, was very clear about it. The punishment for adultery was death. And when she started down that path, she would have known that, and she may have convinced herself that she would never get caught. But caught she was. She knew what was going to happen if she did get caught. So here she stands before them, broken, bruised, maybe bleeding, under the curse of the law and the wrath of her self-appointed and self-righteous judges that looked at her as if she were a worthless piece of human garbage, a woman face-to-face with her sin and the shame it was bringing into her life. Can you understand something of how she may have felt? I mean, odds are in a group this size, there are more than one person who has been unfaithful to their spouse. There may be somebody in this room right now that is in an adulterous relationship that's ongoing. Of course, people don't look at adultery as all that shameful today. It's sort of dismissed as just the way things are. But because you know what God thinks about it, even though the world doesn't see it that way, you know what the shame is. Perhaps, perhaps no one else knows. Or perhaps the source of your shame is something different. Maybe you were molested by a bad parent. Maybe you were seduced by a sordid employer. Or or maybe you were pushed over the edge by an abusive spouse. Whatever it is, you know. No one else does, but you do. Sometimes 
we alone know what's going on. But sometimes, like this woman, our, our shame is public. You're branded by a divorce that you didn't want. Or you're contaminated by a disease that you never expected to have. But whether it's very private or totally public, shame is always painful. When you come face to face with it in a public way like this woman did, it's, it's almost unbearable. But this woman's not the only one who's going to be brought face to face with her shame, her wrong, on this day. A group of people who were so cruelly parading her through town up to Jesus are going to be brought face to face with theirs as well. John tells us they were the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. These people were not only the religious experts, they were the legal experts of the day. If you had an issue that needed to be decided, these were the people that you brought it to. But as with religious issues we have today, what to do in a situation like this wasn't terribly clear. I mean, there was no doubt that it was wrong. Adultery was against the law. The, the disagreement, the difference of understanding came when you try to determine what we do with someone that's been there. No one, uh, no one had the definitive answer on that. In, in fact, it was the, the hot issue of the day. Probably been written up in brotherhood papers and maybe even the theme of a lectureship or two. They can't wait to hear what Jesus has to say about this and so they bring her to him. The truth is they didn't have the power to put her to death even if they had decided that that was what was to be done. I mean, it was a capital offense under Jewish law, but they weren't under Jewish law. They were under Roman law. It was a Roman-occupied nation, which is why when they get ready to try Jesus and want to have him executed, they have to take him to the Roman authorities because they are powerless to execute anyone. But that didn't keep them from threatening her. I don't know what they were hoping to do with the woman, but it wasn't an execution. So what was going on here? What were they doing? What was the point? To be honest, I don't think they were really all that that concerned with the woman one way or another. You see, they would have looked on her with contempt. They might have made some rude comments about her morals or her alley cap kind of behavior or whatever. They may have given her husband a divorce and made life miserable for her, but she really wasn't the one they were that concerned about. She was, she was just somebody caught up in the game they were playing because they had bigger fish to fry. John makes that quite clear in verse 6 here in John 8. He says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, Jesus. woman didn't really mean anything to the religious leaders. She had no name. She was simply a pawn, a piece to be played in the game they were playing with Jesus, using her as much as any man who had ever climbed into her bed, just in a different way. They weren't preeminently concerned about keeping the law or stamping out sin or... 
They were concerned about getting Jesus, catching him in a trap. What we need to understand here is the picture of what was happening when they brought her. When a teacher, when a rabbi was teaching, unlike what we do today where someone stands up and everybody sits down, the rabbi would sit and everyone else would stand. So they bring her into this situation and she stands there in front of everybody. And they demand from Jesus a a verdict, a judgment. What do we do with this person? As they stand there, Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't reply. He doesn't say a word. Instead, he just bends over and starts doodling in the dirt, starts riding on the ground, John says. Isn't that an interesting response? I wonder why he did that. Maybe he did that because he couldn't stand to look into the hatred in their eyes or to look into the hurt in her eyes. Most interesting suggestion that I've read about what he may have been doing as he wrote in the dirt is he was writing down the sins of the people that were there. You know, Ananias stole from his employer. Demetrius cheated on his taxes. Jacob took something that wasn't his and lied about it. Joseph slept with Mark's wife. I don't know. That's pure speculation. I don't know. We don't know what he was writing in the dirt. Maybe he was writing sins, but they were the more respectable ones with no names attached. You know, the kind you can commit and still go to church, like greed and materialism and envy and gossip judgmentalism, the things that the judges, the self-appointed judges were guilty of. You see, they were guilty of things that were just as offensive to God as this woman was. Their hypocrisy was no better than her immorality. Their question was, Jesus, how should we judge this woman? And Jesus' response is, What do you think gives you the right to judge her at all? Jesus is not going to condemn them, though. He's going to allow them to condemn themselves. Whatever he is writing in the dirt, we'll never know, but what he is drawing in this passage is a picture of grace. Leaders continue to demand an answer, so Jesus finally gives them one. Look at verse 7. He stood up. And said, if any of you have never sinned, then go ahead and throw the first stone at her. And once again, he bent over and began writing on the ground. Maybe this is when they noticed what the words actually said that he was writing out. I don't know. But something struck a chord within them. Because the Bible says in verse 9, the people left one by one, beginning with the oldest. And finally, Jesus and the woman were there alone. You see, that burning issue they wanted to address was, what do you do with someone who commits adultery? And the question that Jesus said, the the real issue Jesus said we need to deal with, that you need to understand is, what does God do? How does God respond 
to someone who has been devastated by sin. Look at verse 10. And Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? It's interesting that he calls these people, these self-appointed judges, your accusers. That's one of the names that Satan is called in the Bible. Revelation 12 and verse 10 says, For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. That's what Satan does. That's who he is. He's the accuser. Have you ever experienced his accusing? Oh, he's good at it. That little voice back in the back of your head that says, you you don't really think God's going to forgive you, do you? I mean, you may have these other people fooled, but you don't have him fooled. You really think God could love you when you know what you're really like? And we buy into that. We suck up that garbage. And we don't even realize who it is that's doing it to us. Well, he was the accuser. Perhaps this lady hasn't even looked up to see what was going on. But when Jesus asked that question, didn't even one of them condemn you? She looks. And there's no one there. It's just her and Jesus. Verse 11, we see her response. No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. I suspect there have never been any two more different people stand face to face than Jesus and this woman. She was caught in the very act of an awful sin. He never sinned a single time. Woman who deserved to be condemned the only person on earth who had the right to condemn her. But instead of offering judgment, he gives her mercy. Perhaps for the very first time in her entire life, she encounters a man who is more interested in saving her than exploiting her. Jesus said, I'm not going to condemn you. And she found out what it was like to experience forgiveness by God's amazing grace. But Jesus doesn't just introduce her here to forgiveness. He also calls her to something more. Look at at what he says at the very end of verse 11. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, if you hear most people talk these days, you'd figure Jesus got it backwards. Because if you listen to most people, it's okay. All right, we're going to give you another chance, and we're going to see if you can get it right this time. And if you do, if you get it good enough, 
okay, then maybe, okay, we'll see about forgiving you. Jesus should have said, go and sin no more and then I won't condemn you. If you listen to a lot of folks, but that's not what he said. He said, I'm not condemning you. Now, because you stand uncondemned, because you are forgiven, go and sin no more. In the same way, Jesus doesn't ask that we accomplish some wonderful spiritual new life before he offers us forgiveness. But he gives that grace freely, without strings attached, without reservation, without qualification. And then he says, now go and sin no more. But how in the world can we do that? I mean, what makes any of us think that we could possibly go and sin no more? Well, because the one who calls us to live that way empowers us to do that because he gives us a new heart. Wasn't it amazing to hear the story that Jeff and Holly shared about how God has given her virtually a new life because of that new organ that's been given. Like Holly related in the video, after the the very difficult experience of that first transplant, it, it just didn't work. They were saying, you know, we're doing okay. We're just going to kind of stay here. You know, we got, yeah, she was on dialysis 12 hours a day. The poured in her stomach. You know, it's okay. We're making it. We're going to get by. We'll just, we, we don't want to, we, we just don't want to try that again. We're just going to kind of keep doing what we're doing. How many times do we do that spiritually? You know, I'm, I'm getting by, you know. I mean, yeah, I know I, I, it's not what I want it to be. It's not what, I, you know, I hear about what it ought to be and what God calls us to be. And I, you know, I know it's not anything close to that, but, but we're going to get by. We're going to make it. We're just going to stay here and keep on going. Thank God somebody God placed in her life that said, look, you need to embrace this. You need to allow God to do this in your life. You don't have to keep living this way. And she did, and it did transform her life. God wants to give you a new heart, not not a physical heart, a spiritual heart. He's promised us he'll do that. Look at Ezekiel 36, verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. How do you, how do you follow his decrees? How do you go and sin no more? Because he's going to give us a heart. It's his heart, a new heart. It makes all the difference in the world. Ask Patricia Winters. Patricia lived in uh, the Phoenix area. She was a mother of two. After the birth of her second child, her heart began to give out. 
she began growing weaker and weaker until she could almost do nothing at all. She was sleeping 18 hours a day. Then in March of 2010, they got word like Holly had that there was a transplant available. It was successful. Her life was transformed. And after she recovered from surgery, she discovered through a website called Taylor's Gift, which promotes organ donations. She discovered that the donor for the heart that she now had was a 13-year-old girl who lives, lived right here in the Metroplex over in Capel. Taylor Storch, who had died in a snow skiing accident in March. Through a series of events, Patricia and Taylor's parents, Todd and Tara, decided to meet. Channel 8 was there to film it. Watch, watch this clip of their meeting. Person that has her heart. That encouraged Patricia to reach out. By email, the two moms built a special bond. Tara and, and, and Patricia have been texting and emailing. They had their first conversation um, a day or two ago on the phone. Both couples faced the meeting excited yet nervous. I think it'll be good. I really do. It um, will be. Yeah. It'll be tough, but it'll yeah. be good. The Storches finally pull up at Patricia's door. <laughs> The moms hug, heart to heart, for almost a minute. Then Todd joins them for a minute more. You know, I know this is, we should probably talk, and, but I need to hear her. Patricia retrieves her nurse's stethoscope. This goes around your ears like that. I cleaned it, okay? <laughs> Tell me if you can hear it. It's so strong. Oh, yeah. She is very strong. I want him to It is the sound of life itself. It is Taylor's gift. I am so sorry. And I thank you at the same time. I'm so glad you're good. Taylor's parents heard the heart of their daughter. It was in a different body. It was their daughter's heart. There was another father who decided to give the heart of his child to someone whose heart was wasting away. The difference in that and Taylor's parents is that there wasn't a terrible accident that occurred it was intentional. It was a conscious choice to let his own son die so that you could have his heart, the heart of Jesus. And by the miracle of God's grace, when you give your heart to Jesus, he gives his heart to you. And when God listens to your heart, Here's the heart of his own son that enables us to live the life that God created us to live. The Apostle Paul understood that, and so he wrote in Galatians 2.20, 
It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do you live a life as a child of God? You get a new heart. And when we're in Christ, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees his son. And because you are his, he empowers you to become what a child of a king would be. Remember the story we began with? Let me read you the last paragraph. The king married the prostitute as he had planned. He took her into the castle and treated her with love and respect. Just as the king had promised, she began to change. With each day, the lady of the street diminished and the lady of the court increased. No longer limited by her dark past, she dwelt in the love and security of the king. She learned to laugh and sing. She learned to show others the same kindness the king bestowed on her. Guards, cooks, stable boys, housemaids, courtiers. No one saw her as she was before. Dressed in royal garments, she had taken on the heart of the king she now loved. One day I dared to ask her if she ever thought of returning to her old life. How can I? She smiled. For I am now a queen. King of kings made the same choice as this king. He made you his so you could become royalty. And then he called you to live like it. And when we understand that, how can we live any other way? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing grace that gave us forgiveness, unqualified, without reservation, no strings attached, forgiveness that then calls us to live as forgiven children of the King. Father, by the power of your Spirit, enable us to do that and reflect the glory of the one who loved us so much. For we pray it in Jesus' name, and amen. Create in me a clean heart.